kids can't. Okay, with all that said, uh, let's open our Bibles. Everybody say word. word. We're in Acts chapter 15. Kind of a turning point. Well, it definitely is a turning point of sorts. Uh, they once stood shoulder to shoulder, side by side, fighting together, making disciples together, planting churches, and most recently they had boldly defended the faith against the onslaught and attack of legalism and the distortion of the gospel of grace. But now they stand toe to toe. Neither one willing to budge an inch. We're about to witness one of the greatest missionary teams ever assembled irrevocably separate in the book of Acts. Let this be said, there are times when Christians will separate due to sharp criticism or disagreement. As a ministry, we have seen it many times. We've seen individuals and we've seen groups of people sever relationships. We've seen friendships and families, marriages irrevocably fracture. It's heartbreaking every single time it takes place. We have the tools as Christians to navigate those waters and seeking reconciliation, but there are times when the fracture takes place. We're left to pick up the pieces, and there is no reconciliation. God can and often does still bring about good from painful separation as we are going to see this morning, but it is a process. Acts chapter 15, verse 36, the text records, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, Barn, let us return and let us visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. This is the beginning of the second missionary journey. It's going to be far different as far as texture. As we remember from last week, Paul and Barnabas and friends took a trip to Jerusalem from Antioch. They had a question of orthodoxy. There were those who had come into the church who had spied out the freedom of the church in Antioch and began to try to place a yoke of legalism and bondage on the Gentile church, telling them that they must be circumcised before they are saved. They must follow the law of Moses and the customs of Moses before they are saved. I believe it is important for me to stress again this morning, if anyone, and I mean anyone, if myself included, if anyone preaches a gospel to you that requires you to perform any work at all, whether it is uh, some form of a sacrament or baptism or communion, marriage or penance, uh, if someone preaches that there's a baptism that needs to take place in a particular building or in a particular denomination or you have to do certain good works or self-sacrifice, or if somebody teaches you you have to give of resources or perform any form of outward or inward ritual to be saved, they're a false teacher. If anything is ever added to the gospel for the salvation of a person's soul, it is a false teaching. We need to understand also, if a person teaches that you can lose your salvation, if you break certain rules, that is also a false teaching. Your salvation is secured by faith. It is given to you. It is a gift. And once you are born again, you can't be made unborn. Once you are, were, once you were made alive, you cannot be made dead. Once you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, that cannot be taken away. It's very, very important. It is by grace we are saved through faith alone. It's a gift. I think, family, in that is the greatest declaration ever that you are loved. 
Paul and Barnabas and friends went to bat for that message. It proved to be orthodox. But also, as we saw last week, that we are saved, we're no longer to return back to the bondage that we have been saved from. There is that adage in the scripture that for some reason, dogs like to go back to their own vomit. And as believers, in the case of Gentiles in the first century, the church there was, was no longer to return back to pagan ritualistic practices of idolatrous temples. As you remember from the letter that was written last week at the Jerusalem Council, they, they wrote in accordance to the gospel of grace, but they said, hey, no more animal sacrifice, no more sexual prostitution or animal strangulation or consumption of blood in those false temples to false gods. And I believe that needs to be reiterated for us today. Once we're in a relationship with the living God, we shouldn't return back. There's some old stomping grounds that I don't revisit. My life has changed. For example, we don't sacrifice bulls. That's not our typical rhythm. But we certainly, as a culture and as individuals, sacrifice to the bowl of, bowl of greedy capitalism. Financial independence is one of the biggest idols in our culture today. We may not practice cult prostitution, but we certainly seek out relationships to fulfill us, whether it's a boyfriend or girlfriend or another spouse or some quasi-Hollywood romance that's not only fiction, but it's sexual immorality. We may not participate in animal strangulation, but as a culture, we hoard and we take, ravaging the world's resources, placing a stranglehold of starvation on a massive population of earth. Hold up, preacher. It's getting a little too real. We may not drink the blood of bulls, but we certainly drink the Red Bull of intense independence. We not only declared our independence from Britain, July 4, 1776, we've also declared our independence from God. We are saved by grace through faith, but that should never be a license to return back to bondage. And so Paul and Barnabas have their message, and they're ready. They're ready to travel. And they're ready to begin this second missionary journey. But then this issue surfaces. The difference of opinion. The issue of prioritizing people or the mission. The work or the workers. It's a tough balance in the church. What are we, what are we to prioritize most? The people or the ministry? The work or the workers? And you'll see here in a moment, a fracture is going to take place because of a difference of opinion. You will come to discover most fractures are not theologically motivated. Oftentimes, the fracture that takes place is, is typically brought about by relationships. Verse 37, it's simple. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. It makes sense. I mean, let's think about Barnabas. His name means what? Son of what? Son of encouragement. He was the guy of the second and third chance. He was the guy that vouched for Paul when every single person at the church in Jerusalem was like, hey, he's a persecutor. Barnabas is like, no, 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 he's a preacher of righteousness. Barnabas went to look for Paul on the, uh, uh, when he was at Tarshish to bring him back to Antioch to raise him up and disciple him. Barnabas was the guy who believed in people. He poured into people. 
And so when he thought he had an opportunity again to take John Mark, even though John Mark had failed, and we'll revisit that here in a moment, he thought to himself, you know what, I'm going to take my cousin, John Mark, and I'm going to bring him along. He has some maturing to do. In chapter 13 of Acts, we see John Mark abandoning the work at Perga. He was young, inexperienced. He probably got homesick. But Barnabas at this point is ready to go to bat for John Mark. I love the Barnabases in this world. They believe in people. Not that Paul doesn't believe in people. But I'll tell you at this moment, Paul is going to prioritize the work over people. In verse 38, it says, But Paul thought best not to take them with them, the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Paul was not interested in risking another situation where John Mark would quit mid-mission. To Paul, the work was too important. The mission too grave. And he worried that this, this young John Mark would not see it all the way through. And you know what? I can see it from both sides. I mean, I can see the blessing of prioritizing people, but then I can also see the necessity of prioritizing the mission because it's that important. And so on one side, you have Paul who stands there and says, we're not taking John Mark. And then on the other side, you have Barnabas who's like, John Mark's coming. And in the process, a sharp division takes place. In verse 39, we see that neither apostle budged. There arose, what is that, what is that phrase? A what? A sharp disagreement. Now, there are commentators who will try and make this a little bit more delicate than it actually is. We have this tendency to raise up these folks in the scriptures and elevate them to almost mythical proportions. These are normal guys. What do you think a sharp disagreement sounded like and looked like? Yelling and fighting. They were stabbing each other with their words. And in fact, the sharp disagreement grew to such a level that they separated from each other. They had spent years together in the work. And now they separate from one another. Many years later, there would be reconciliation. We see glimpses of it in 1 Corinthians. We see, we see it in 2 Timothy. There is going to be reconciliation. But at this moment, you can feel the sadness of the, te- of the passage. They separate from one another. And that may be your experience right now. You may have just separated from somebody or a friendship or a relationship, and you can sense that sadness. Now, I want to encourage you that just because you feel that way today does not mean that'll be the reality tomorrow. There is hope of reconciliation, but it does hurt. And it's a very sad picture to see two faithful believers separate from each other. But even in that, I I see the truth of the Scripture that God is going to do some good through it. There is a verse that has almost become like trite Christian sentimentalism, and we're almost like told to not use it, like not to bring it up because, oh, that's just, that's just Christianese. But it is actually a hard-as-nail verse out of the Scripture where we are reminded that God can and often does take really, really messy and painful circumstances and brings about good through them. In fact, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says this, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. It doesn't mean that all things are good. 
It just means that in the end, we will come to recognize that everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, it all leads up ultimately to our glorification in Christ, but often in circumstances, God will bring about good through it too. As we're going to see in this moment, these two missionaries separate, but what God does through this separation is he takes one missionary team and he divides it into two missionary teams. So twice the work can be undertaken. That is good coming about from something that isn't good. Do y'all see that? You understand what I'm getting at? Look at verse 39, end of verse 39. It says, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And so the church at Antioch says, look, blessings to both of you. Both missionary teams, you guys are anointed by God. Go. Be led. In verse 41, it says, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And so can you bring up that map for me? So basically what you have here is you have Paul and Barnabas. They fracture at Antioch. They had just come from Jerusalem. They decided they wanted to go revisit all of the churches that they had visited previously in the first missionary journey. They fracture. So Barnabas and John Mark head down to Seleucia, and they sail over to Cyprus. The book of Acts never revisits their journeys again. This is the last we see of Barnabas and the book of Acts. The book of Acts now traces the journey of Paul and friends. He takes Silas, and he's going to travel north. In fact, he's going to revisit his home city, and he's going to be making his way up through Derby and Lystra, some fascinating territory that they're going to be crossing. In fact, as we turn into Acts 16, Paul is traveling the land north. It was difficult and arduous. He was traversing stone roads, many that looked just like this one. This, is, this was their highway system of the day. You can still walk these paths that head north up into present-day Turkey. In fact, as Paul went north, I quote here from Pillar, Pillar Commentary, it says, This meant walking through the narrow pass in Tarsus, mountains known as the Sicilian Gates, traversing some rugged territory. I think about, like in comparison, what the apostles went through to take the gospel to the world, and then what I do to take the gospel across the street. Check this out. This is what they hiked through. This is called the Sicilian Gates. It's a very, very rugged, narrow pass. Well, it's just like anything. Today, you can drive through it. You ever, you ever visit, like, the places where the old wagons used to go west, and you're going, like, 85 <laughs> down highway, whatever? Here's, here's a present-day uh, picture of, of the Sicilian Gates. Uh, you can just basically drop it into third gear and just take that corner tight, and you're through it. But they did it on foot. I don't, I, as I consider that, I think to myself, I, I wish I had a little bit more of that in me. Like, God, give me a little bit more of that rugged courage to take the gospel to places that are hard to reach and to communities that are hard to reach. It says in verse 1, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. If you all remember the city of Lystra, we saw it a couple of weeks ago. That is the city where Paul the Apostle healed a guy through the power of the Holy Spirit. They were like, it's a God! And so they're about to sacrifice a bull to him and to Barnabas, and then they turn around and try to sacrifice Paul. You all know what I'm talking about? Where at Lystra, he's practically stoned to death, dragged outside the city. A group of disciples circle him, and they're like, hey, Paul, you still with us? Paul gets up, goes back into the city, and continues preaching. Well, now he returns back to Lystra, and since he's been gone, a beautiful church has been born in the city of Lystra. A church has been planted, and it's not only been planted, it's growing, and from within this church is going to come another missionary. And I told you 
during that message that sometimes we look at particular cities or places and we think, eh, nothing good's coming out of that place. There's no way God's going to powerfully use a small community like that. Like Lystra, they got the Temple of Zeus there. But from within this community is going to come a young protege of Paul, a guy by the name of Timothy. Look at verse 1 of chapter 16. It says, Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. It's an interesting phraseology. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And so we're told quite a bit about this young man named Timothy in the scriptures. He was born to a, in a believing home. In fact, the book of 2 Timothy tells us that Timothy's mom, her name is Eunice, and grandmother Lois were the ones that discipled Timothy. We don't hear anything about his father, and so it is argued, other than he was a Greek, it is argued that he is an unbeliever. And so some of you might be in homes that are kind of divided spiritually. Or one or the other is, is spiritually founded and is discipling the kids or the grandkids. And you may get discouraged in that, but I want to encourage you that God powerfully uses the testimony of mom and grandma. As seen in the life of Timothy. I'm not negating dad and grandpa, but in this particular passage, the reason why this young man is so well equipped is because he was so well discipled by his mom and grandmother. It's a beautiful picture. And also highlights the importance of children's ministry because the children that we disciple over in that building are going to be the missionaries and proclaimers of the gospel tomorrow. And so Timothy, well spoken of by the brothers, is about to join the mission, but something very strange happens. Verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. This is such a conundrum. They just went to battle against circumcision. Okay, like, <laughs> all right, bring the map up again. Please. Pretty, please. Okay, so they're at Antioch. The Judaizers come into Antioch, say you got to be circumcised to be saved. They travel all the way down to Jerusalem, have this huge debate about circumcision. They get a letter. They travel all the way back up. They rejoice. They celebrate. No circumcision. There's a division. Barnabas sails this way. Paul walks this way. They get up to Lystra. Timothy's going to join the mission, and the first thing that Paul has Timothy do Let's get circumcised. Verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. And so there's this massive conundrum. In one sense, Paul adamantly fights against circumcision, and in the next passage, he's literally having his new associate get circumcised. And the thought is, why would he do that? What in the world was Paul thinking? Why does he have Timothy get circumcised? And here's the answer, so that nothing would get in the way of the work. And what I mean by that, Paul knew that if he went into a place of Jewish teaching and they knew about Timothy, they would immediately get all hung up on the uncircumcised Greek. And so Paul also recognized that the Gentiles wouldn't carry their way. And so that nothing would get in the way, Timothy is circumcised. There's a passage that speaks directly to this issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Paul's speaking personally. And I think this has great application for our own life. He says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake 
of the what? Of the gospel. He says, to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Gentile, I became a Gentile. He's saying, I will do whatever it takes to win somebody to the Lord. He was removing barriers for the sake of the gospel. So often we get hung up on our style or our perspective or our political leanings, the axes we love to grind. And now this great new platform we have called social media. We get to like proclaim it for the world. And it becomes a detriment to the gospel. I love that you have no idea where I lean politically. I get accused by diehard conservatives of being a liberal. I get accused by diehard liberals of being a conservative. I love the fact that you have absolutely no idea who and how I vote. You know why? Because that's not my priority. My priority is not preaching politics. My priority is preaching Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection for the salvation of the world. And if there's anything that's going to get involved in place of that or get in the way, it should be cut off. I can't think of a greater compliment. I typically wear, as you know, a button-up and blue jeans. Uh, sometimes I have a beard. Other times I look like I just graduated from high school. <laughs> I probably couldn't buy a lotto ticket right now without my ID. <laughs> That's right. But I'll tell you right now, if there's something that I'm wearing or something that I'm doing that hinders the gospel, it's not more important. I love that T Timothy was willing to do what wasn't required so that it wouldn't hinder the work. He didn't do it to get saved. Paul wasn't putting Timothy under a yoke of legalism. They were like, look, if this little flap of skin gets in the way of them hearing the gospel, let's cut it off. Acts chapter 16, verses 4 through 5. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So they were delivering the gospel of grace, and they were also telling them, hey guys, no more turning back to the pagan rituals. Walk out this new life in Christ. And it says the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. As the scriptures were taught, the church grew. I think it's a great picture of health. The Holy Spirit is moving in the churches, and they do what healthy, vibrant churches do. They're growing. And so at this point, they are continuing on in their missionary work, but something is about to happen, and, and I think we can all draw some, some similarities or maybe some uh, relation to it in our own life. Have you ever had a time in your life where you needed to hear a word from God? And you're like seeking direction from him, and you're going, God, which way do I go? I guess I'm just going to keep going forward. Should I turn to the right? God says no. Oh, okay. Should I turn to the left? Well, God says no. Okay. What do I do? Well, I keep going forward. But what happens if the road ends? I mean, there's definitely a point where I can't keep walking forward, right? I mean, the road's definitely going to end at some point. I mean, really, at the end of this carpet, I'm going to run into the wall. But you may be driving a road or walking a, a path in your life, and you're like, it, it eventually ends. The road ends. What's the point of this? God may be telling you to get on a boat. All right, I want you to look at this map. So Paul and friends, they're traveling. They make their way up to Antioch, and they think, well, maybe we're supposed to preach the gospel here. Oddly enough, the Holy Spirit says no. And they think, well, then maybe we're supposed to preach the gospel here. The Spirit of Jesus says no. And so they keep traveling, and eventually they reach Troas, and that's the end of the road. 
Let's look at the, the scriptures, starting in verse 7. Uh, and they went through the region, I'm sorry, verse 6, of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Like literally told, forbidden to do it. Verse 7, and when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So in passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and the road ended. It reminds me of, of traveling in Alaska. There's like two main roads that you can get around, the, basically the places that are habited, uh, inhabited. And one of the roads leads all the way down to a place called Homer. I don't know if you know the Aleutian Islands that stretch out the arm that comes out on Alaska. But there's a road that you travel, you go along the largest natural spit, and it literally gets to the end and it says the end. It's the end of the road. And then you hop on the intercoastal highway, and you take a boat everywhere else. Well, that's exactly what happens. They enter into the city of Troas. This is a, a present-day picture of Troas, some of the, the ruins uh, that are left behind. That's what Troas looks. You're looking out at the Aegean Sea. I mean, this is what the, the apostles and the, the missionaries arrive at. They, they get to the end of the road, and they're looking out over the Aegean Sea, and one of the most significant shifts of the gospel is about to take place because there's this dude from Macedonia. He's going to say, hey, come, come help me. Look at verse 9. It says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over. Come over to Macedonia and help us. Can you imagine just having a vision like that and then hopping on a boat? It's crazy to me. Some have argued that this is the single greatest shift in the gospel in the book of Acts as it relates to westward expansion. I quote here from New Illustrated Bible. It says, Paul's vision and subsequent trip from Troas to Neapolis proved to be a major fork in the road for western civilization. One small step for Paul became one giant leap for Christianity as it spread west, gaining a foothold at Philippi and Macedonia, moving on into Europe and eventually pervading the entire western hemisphere. We ourselves are believers today because the Holy Spirit said no and then said no and then came the giant yes. Take the gospel to Macedonia. In fact, verse 10, the text records, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, what is that word? <coughs> we. Oh, you almost miss it. It's so small. Little we. Immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The writer Luke just moved from the third person to the first person. He somewhere along the way joined the mission. Did you see that? Isn't that fascinating? Up until now, Luke has been talking about things that had been happening as he recorded history. He's now a part of history. There's a point in all of our lives where we go from talking about them and they to us and we, where we get in the mission. We get about the mission of Jesus. And we just saw it take place in Acts chapter 16, verse 10. Next week, we are going to sail. We're going to hop a boat, Troas. We're going to make our way over the Aegean Sea. We're going to hop on the Via Ignatia, a road that we can still walk and travel today. And we're going to make our way to Philippi. We're going to meet a, a woman by the name of Lydia, who is a purveyor of purple garments, and a church is going to be planted in her home and literally will become uh, a centrally located sending agency of missionaries 
to the to populated world. It's going to be a fascinating picture. In fact, the book of Philippians coincides with that work. Let's look at some applications. Uh, the first, and I, I do hope this is, this is driven home, this is a reiteration of last week, but we need to continually talk about this. Come to Christ, but leave it behind. And what I mean by that, I, I hope it's never a question in this church how a person is saved. I, I hope it's clear. Like, I hope you walk out of here and you understand that you were saved by faith. It, it's, it's a grace gift. You place your faith in what Jesus has done You were forgiven of your sins. But I hope it is also clear that in that transaction, we are supposed to grow in our salvation. That more and more of our life is to reflect more and more of Jesus. It's called sanctification. We're saved by grace. That is true. It is a gift. But there's something that happened to our old nature. It was done away with. We now have a new nature. And that nature is Christ. And so I want to encourage us... How are we, as it relates to being transformed, are we returning back to old idols, old temples, old worship? Or are we being transformed by the renewing of our mind in conjunction with the Holy Spirit? We follow Christ by faith, but we got to leave behind those old pagan practices and be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Family, we're just like that early church. That same letter could be written to us, and it has been. And so secondly, I also want to, I want to say that sharp disagreements and separation, that happens. It's going to happen. There's times where you're going to fracture in relationships. We see a massive disagreement between Par- Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas prioritizing people. Paul prioritizing mission. It caused a division. God used it. But it is so painful to see Christians divide, especially unnecessary fracture. God can do good out of it, but there's, there's a process we can walk. And I want to encourage you, if you have a relationship that is struggling right now, we have what's called the roadmap of reconciliation. We keep it up front in the lobby. It's a path that you can walk to seek reconciliation with another. And it's a path that they can walk to seek reconciliation. Fractures happen, but we have tools in Christ to seek reconciliation when they do. Uh, Third, I want to say let nothing get in the way. We see this clearly from the circumcision of Timothy. It's so easy to let our personal preferences, our political leanings, our style of dress, or even our religious convictions get in the way of the gospel. Whatever we do, family, we need to say we do it for the sake of the gospel. So you may have a particular stance when it comes to, mm, I don't know, gun rights. Not more important than the gospel. You may have a particular perspective when it comes to political leadership not more important than the gospel. You may have a particular opinion as it relates to the protection of our borders, not more important than the gospel. What's more important than the gospel? Is that an applicable application? Yes, it is. Family, let us not tear down the things that are not more important Let us set aside our personal preferences. To the weak, let's become weak. To the strong, let's become strong. To the Gentile, Gentile. To the Jew, Jew. Whatever we need to do to let the gospel shine through our lives, it's a humbling. We need to humble ourselves so that the gospel can shine forth. And then finally, I'll end here. When God says no, (laughs) that's my favorite experience. How about you? 
Isn't it great when God says no? You try to go right, door shuts. Try to go left, door shuts. There's times when God in his own timing will reveal his will. It's frustrating, it's stretching, it's maturing. There are times when God is more concerned with our character development than our circumstantial comfort. And one of my, well, I don't like no, and I really don't like wait. When God says, wait. And so my encouragement to you as you're walking out your Christian life and you feel like, ah, I'm reaching the end of the road. Lord, you got to make a decision. You got to help me out here. You know, you keep going forward. You can't go right. You can't go left. And you may be frustrated by the nose and you may be frustrated by God saying, wait, but there may be a way bigger yes. There may be a yes that's bigger than you, bigger than your need. There may be a yes that literally leads to the salvation of millions of people. How would that be? God's yeses are always way bigger than the no's. All right, let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your scripture. Thank you, God, that we can turn to it, we can study it, and apply it to our lives. And I pray that most importantly, Jesus, you are glorified, not only in our lives, but here in this church. We pray, Lord, just for your presence in us, the courage. Lord, at times I lack the courage to cross the street, let alone pass up, walk through mountains and hike roads and face real persecution for your gospel. Please give me greater courage. Give us greater courage to share your love with the world. I pray today that every single person here knows you. If you were here and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, please listen. Jesus did die for your sins. He was buried and he has risen from the grave. The Bible declares that all who believe in him, all who trust in him will be saved. If you have not trusted in Jesus as your Savior and you feel like he's calling to you to trust in him, in the quietness of your heart, tell him, I believe. I believe that you died for me. I believe you were buried and I believe you've risen, Jesus. Please save my life. If that is truly your heart's prayer, you've just passed from death to life. You are now a son or a daughter of God. Welcome to the family. So Lord, give us courage now. Courage to leave those idols behind. Courage to leave those old temples behind. Courage to walk by faith and be transformed. Holy Spirit, transform us. We want to be more like Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Where it's time for us to go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. And share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Till we meet again. Same time, same place next week. And family, do not forget, you are loved. Now go tell the world, go proclaim to the world that they are too. Radiate for Jesus.